This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Excited for the afternoon. My name is Ilan Gore. I run a program called Cyclotron Road. It's essentially an accelerator incubator on steroids for very hard energy technologies and climate solutions. Uh, I say on steroids because we run it out of a nearly billion-dollar-year research lab called Berkeley Lab, uh, one of the 17 national labs. I'm not going to talk much about it here. Go to our website, cyclotronroad.org. Check it out for all the students here. Tell your friends. uh, We're looking for you all and your friends and all the folks Tom was mentioning who are going to create the solution to apply and be part of what we're building. And so thank you guys for being here. I think uh, with that, we'll introduce the judges. Um, we've got an amazing panel of judges. Uh, uh, again, I think, you know, very thankful for their time. I'm going to just go through the list, and if you could stand up, I don't know if, I think you're under the light, so folks will be able to see you. Rafi Garabedian, Chief Technology Officer at First Solar. Uh, go ask Rafi for a job. <laughs> Actually, go ask all of these folks for a job. Because honestly, if they give you a job, you may decide, you know, why bother on the other project. Um, <clears throat> Gabriel Kra, the managing director of Prelude Ventures, one of the premier venture capital firms focused on climate solutions. Uh, Lila Madrone, CEO of Sunfolding. An amazing company. If you don't know what Sunfolding does, go talk to Lila. Check them out. Uh, Derek Prudian, chairman and CEO of Daintree Networks. Decided to take a shot on goal however many years ago, and it paid off. Uh, Depender Saluja, Managing Director of Capricorn Investment Group. <laughs> Another preeminent firm focused on climate. Uh, Gia Schneider, I don't know if Gia's here. Not here, but David okay. David Phillips, sitting in for Gia Schneider, CEO of Mattel Energy. Uh, and those are the judges. So we got all, all the students here. Sue, anything else we need to know? Ready to go. Okay, so we're going to hear from the students now. I think you know the grill. There's one from each campus. Uh, Hopefully no brawls will break out here in the stands. Three-minute presentation, and then the judges are going to tabulate some scores, and I'll pepper you with some just fun questions so we can pass the time. Sound right? Okay, so first up, Benjamin Summercorn from UC Riverside. He's going to talk about the water-energy relationship at Riverside managing our consumption. Here in California, we talk about water all the time, but what we don't talk about very often is that using water takes electricity, it takes energy. Um, so the California Energy Commission determined that in 2001, 19% of all energy used in the state was for water-related purposes. So to put that into perspective, that's enough energy for a year to power 5 million homes, which is 39% of the total households in California. So my project aimed to understand this relationship at like a smaller institutional level, using UC Riverside as a model. Unfortunately, a direct comparison isn't possible due to a dearth of metering at UC Riverside, but what we do know is that 45% of Riverside's total greenhouse gas emissions is directly related to purchased electricity. So we decided to determine the percentage of purchased electricity directly associated with water usage. So here on the left you can see we have a map of UC campus, with some points of interest for the four main contributors 
We have moving potable water on campus. We have moving irrigation water on campus, the heating and ventilation systems on campus, and then all of these combined in the individual buildings on campus. Now, the first thing I would like you to see here is that the findings from the California Energy Commission are scalable. They scale down to the UC level, at least, to an institution. On the high end, we have you can see what 17%, and this is not exhaustive at all, right? There's a lot of things missing in this list. The other thing I would like you guys to see is the wide range of values and the very confused man at the bottom. So these things are telling us that we don't know a lot. Um, from doing this project, I can tell you we know almost nothing, at least on Riverside, and I'm sure we're not alone in businesses, institutions, the UC level. Um, we don't know almost anything about what we use because we aren't metering. We aren't paying attention to what we're using. Now, um, this talks about solutions, right? So we can easily improve the amount of water we use, the amount of electricity we use, and in this case particularly where they meet. Um, you can't manage what you can't measure. A very intelligent man told me this once, and I think it rings true here. Um, if we want to be serious about improving our consumption, improving how we live, we have to begin to measure, understand how we do that. Um, secondly, we need a centralized system. At least at the UC, at UCR level, this data existed across all number of departments. It was incredibly difficult to find and required a number of expertise to read, understand, analyze. So in the middle, I have what I like to call the pyramid of improvement, right? So measuring speaks to the base. We have to begin with measuring. My project speaks to visualizing what's happening. Centralizing our system really speaks to managing and controlling these systems. And together, we can improve what we use without doing anything else. And finally, I think this project really speaks to the fact that technology isn't the answer. This might be kind of a weird thing to say in this room, but the reality is that technology is directionless. Right? It is up to us. We have to purposely direct technology with sustainability in mind for a real change to be possible. Thank you. Okay, I'm coming back from behind the curtain. Uh, do you go by Ben or Benjamin? Ben. Ben. All right, so tell us, how did you get into this project? Um, well, actually, I'm, my research for my PhD is hydrokinetic technology. So I wanted to look in the piping systems and see if we could do some cool microhydrokinetics. But when I went to go do that, I realized we knew nothing about our water system. So I couldn't begin to tell you what kind of cool savings we could have with some technological advancement if we didn't understand what we were using. So my project completely switched, and I just began learning about our water system. I'm pretty sure I know more about the water system at UCR than anybody. All right. It, judges, are you, are you, you're meant to be working. Are, we, are you still working? Okay. So for the investor judges, we have an example of a pivot here. That's a key word. Extra points, please. Wait, so, so did you, is this now your PhD project? No, my PhD work is uh, hydrokinetic weight characterization. Still. Yeah. How does your advisor feel about the fact that you're doing all this stuff? <laughs> he has not. He wasn't as happy the first half of the year, but I think I'm I'm bringing him around. I'm bringing him onto the sustainability side, right? Like I, he knows it's important, and like for whatever reason, I've become this champion on campus, at least in the engineering department. And he seems to be proud of me. So as long as I keep <laughs> advancing my PhD work, he'll be fine. It's exactly where you want to be. If your advisor's <laughs> not uncomfortable in some ways, you're doing something wrong. Thanks, Ben. Thank right. you.
Okay, next up we have Eric Walters, UC Davis, presenting on fungal bacterial co-culture for biofuel production. Just that. They say one man's trash can be another's treasure. I'm going to tell you how my work at UC Davis is using bioengineering to turn agricultural waste trash into sustainable liquid fuel treasure. First, the trash. When crops are harvested from a field, there's a lot of non-food stuff left behind. Stalks, leaves, there's a lot of plant matter that's just left on the field to rot. The uh, treasure that we're trying to make here is isobutanol. Uh, This is a biofuel that has a lot of potential because it has high energy density and good compatibility with existing gasoline infrastructure. I'm a microbiologist working in an engineering lab, so I want to see how we can manipulate natural systems in order to solve problems. So let's start out by seeing what microbes we could use to help us in this process. Anywhere in nature that you have dead plants, like agricultural waste, you'll probably be able to find fungi. Plant cell walls contain this large, tough sugar polymer called cellulose, and some fungi are able to break that down into sugars and then eat those to grow. Our lab works with one such fungus, Neurospora crassa. For isobutanol, there isn't a natural source where we can get a large amount of this, but thanks to a lot of work from a lot of researchers, there are recombinant strains of the bacterium E. coli that can produce high amounts of isobutanol, and they can do this starting from just sugar. I think this is really cool, and I wish we could use this right now, but the process is a little too costly to be competitive with gasoline. However, if we had a really inexpensive source of sugar that we could feed these strains, then this starts to get more feasible. So, looking back at the big picture, we can go using the Neurospora, a fungus, from plant matter to sugar, and using the bacteria, we can go from sugar to fuel. Simple, right? We just put them together and we're all done. Well, bad news. Microbes are pretty greedy, and both of these organisms would rather starve each other than share these sugars between them. If these were mature, responsible adults, we could just say, Neurospora, you need to break down this cellulose and share it with E. coli. We could say, E. coli, Your job is to turn this into isobutanol. But if you take all of the sugar, then you starve both of you and it's all over. Uh, They're not reasonable like that, though. And what we really need to do is get in here and engineer these organisms. And that is exactly what I'm doing in my research. I've developed a recombinant strain of Neurospora that is able to break down that tough cellulose polymer into shorter soluble sugars. Uh, More importantly, it does this and leaves the sugars outside of the cell. I've also developed a strain of E. coli, which, while producing isobutanol, is able to use that sugar that's produced and consume that, uh, turning it to isobutanol while still leaving some of the sugar outside of the cell for the Neurospora to grow. By forcing them to have this sort of cooperative behavior through this genetic engineering, we're able to create a co-culture where they work together, allowing us to go all the way from agricultural waste to isobutanol turning trash to treasure, and making sustainable liquid fuels. Thank you. All right. Judges get to work. (laughs) Trash to treasure. How many of your friends think that's awesome, and how many think it's kind of corny? Uh, Starting from me on the corny side of things, (laughs) uh, you know, I think there's a lot of appeal in the idea of taking a waste stream and making a value-added product. 
Um, it's not trash per se. There, there are some values to uh, these compounds that are being left on the field. Uh, we've talked a lot about soil health today. If you just take all of the organic, organic matter away from the farms, you do run into some problems. Um, so there's a lot more less interesting details, I guess, about um, how you do the conversion to produce those sugars and how you can get some of those important nutrients back into the soil. Uh, so trash to treasure is more, a little more of a hook than a thesis. There we go. <laughs> I asked a joke question. I got a serious answer. So now I'm going to ask another joke question. Oh, that's another how'd serious you, how'd you How do you stick on fungi versus fungi? Oh, um... Is that the right I, way to say it? I regularly refer to myself as a fun guy. There it is. And it just got really confusing for people. There it is. All right, judges, we're ready? Okay. Awesome. Thanks, Thank Eric. All right. <laughs> I heard you got an extra point for that one. That's good. All right, next up is Alex Schrobenhauser Clonin. From UCSF with Earth Health One, the Health Profession's Climate Communication Apollo Project. I'm already inspired. Earth and health are one. That's a simple statement that disrupts more than a century of medical care that is focused on the human body in isolation. In operating rooms and histology labs, medical students like me study the human body from its visible anatomical parts to its invisible microscopic functioning. But we hardly acknowledge, let alone learn, about the macroscopic functions of biomes and climate that create the soil, water, air, flora, and fauna, which through what we eat, breathe, drink, touch, and even perceive, become the very flesh of the body. Our environment and industries are cropped out of the medical picture. Yet polling shows that health professionals are some of the most highly trusted and regarded public sources of information on climate change. Framing carbon pollution as a health issue, one that is affecting individuals and families right now, is one of the most effective ways to shift priorities on climate. So knowing this, how do we bridge the inconsistency between the training health professionals receive and the trust the public puts in them to speak to sustainability? Earth Health One is a student-led movement at UCSF that seeks to activate the empathic caregiving, communication skills, and societal trust that epitomize great medical care in the service of pushing carbon neutrality full forward full speed. We take it as a guiding principle that climate change is a life-altering diagnosis for us all. It therefore needs to be facilitated with the same communication skills that great physicians and nurses use in the clinical context. Last fall, I piloted this approach by calling a family meeting for Patient Earth where I connected health professionals' clinical duties to climate advocacy, building the metaphor that we can support the public, just like our patients, to move beyond denial and wishful thinking to commit to effective options for treating our climate crisis. This campus conversation has grown, and just last month, we had an inaugural Earth Health One conference geared to parlaying the medical community's skills and identities into climate action. We want to take this a step further. The millennial generation of rising health professionals speaks and organizes using the currency of social media. If we win here at Carbon Slam, the funds will go towards creating brief documentary shorts that will combine professional filmmaking with the voices, images, and projects of people working at the nexus of climate and health. Inspired by shows like the Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson Cosmos series, we plan on using health trainees and narrators that can help lead an audience of their peers into a space of wonder and excitement about the health opportunities and co-benefits of clean energy and sustainable health care. These videos will explore the map of what we believe 
constitutes holistic climate action, from the personal work of accepting a diagnosis to the political work of advocating for legislation, and from the most practical emission reduction projects in hospitals to the philosophical shifts in our understanding of ecological health and physical and mental well-being. We aim to create a four-part series of videos that can virally spread amongst health students and campuses in the UC system. Earth Health One is an Apollo project for climate communication getting our bodies back into the atmospheric capsule of our planetary spaceship so that we can feel all the more exhilarated, healthy, and connected when we touch down upon carbon-neutral ground by 2025. We look forward to having you on board. All right, nice work. I'm going to sneak around. Um, all right, judges are going. Did you pitch Tom? Uh, I should. Yeah. Is he still here? I'm not sure. Uh, all right. Well, well, you'll have to track him down. This yeah. is right, right in line. How'd you get, how'd you get into this? Uh, I took a year off um, after my third year of medical school and just started reading more. Uh, and also I'm a backcountry skier and uh, went up to the Sierras in the middle of January um, at the same time that I caught uh, the flu fever because I was a bad medical student, get, didn't get my flu shot. Um, and I sort of came to the realization while I was spiking a fever and not being able to, you know, do something I love, um, what, you know, how urgent this really was, and then thought about the skills uh, around communication that I think are really important for good physicianhood, and yeah. came up with these. This is a lot, a lot of this is about sort of people and these moments of communication. What's been the most memorable kind of moment so far in this project? Um, if there is one. I, well, Maybe right now. No, no. That's okay. <laughs> well, it is a memorable. But uh, at that small calling a family meeting, and, you know, I, w I hope to grow this because it was really intimate, which is good. That's how a family meeting is. Uh, there was actually a patient who had just been on the UCSF Medical Center, and she was an 89-year-old woman um, who lived close. And she came, um, and it was pretty phenomenal. She stayed way later than the other people who had to rush out even before I was finished. Um, and we sat down, and, you know, it was phenomenal for her to, um, you know, bring forward her interest in this, even though her lifespan is short. And I told her about my interest in palliative hospice care, and we got into this discussion about um, why you would get involved in this, even if it's not for your particular lifespan, but just life on Earth generally. Awesome. Thanks. Next up, Timothy O'Connor from UC San Diego. Stretchable, printable, and wearable solar cells. Good afternoon. More energy strikes the Earth in the form of sunlight in one hour than all of human civilization derives from petroleum in an entire year. I work with Dr. Darren Lapomi to make stretchable and ultra-flexible solar cells to help acquire energy in a responsible manner at all scales. We start with the fundamentals. Uh, by characterizing some material design rules, we want to see how changing molecular structure changes the mechanics and the electronics of our devices. By changing just one parameter in the field's most well-studied system, a composite of P318 and PCBM, by just increasing the length of this carbon chain from 6 to 8, we found that we could drastically increase the elasticity of our devices. Take, for example, P3HT PCBM, which has a carbon chain length of 6. This solar cell cracks at 3% strain. By adding just two carbon atoms, C8, we can stretch this solar cell to 50%. We use this knowledge to build a biaxially stretchable solar cell on the surface of a hemisphere. And as one would expect, C8 makes a fully functioning device, while C6 experiences catastrophic failure in the form of short circuits. But you'll notice that the current density of C8 is very low. 
This is because there's a trade-off. As you increase the length of this carbon chain, you increase what you gain in mechanics, you lose in efficiency. So we then wanted to see if we could co-engineer both electronics and mechanics in a single material, or if these properties are forever at odds. We tried block polymers, copolymers, and physical blends, and then we tried C7, which has the efficiency of C6 with the stretchability of C8. We called this study lucky number seven, and we used its results to build the world's most mechanically resilient wearable solar cell, a solar cell capable of conforming to something as dynamic and unpredictable as the human body. We smashed it a thousand times, and it was still able to, at a 75% compression, and it was still able to effectively convert sunlight into electricity. And as a comparison, C6 failed after, after less than 10 cycles. We then used this wearable solar cell to power other wearable electronics. Here, a digital watch, which you could think of as a proxy for a wearable biomedical sensor, as well as an LED and a portable battery. And we did it using natural sunlight. We are now collaborating with a group in Denmark and a company in Denmark that works on scalability. They print solar cells by the kilometer and deploy them on reels to take advantage of high-throughput, low-cost manufacturing techniques and distribution. And I'm finishing my, solar, my PhD in digitally patterning and inkjet printing solar cells with the goal of using only water as a solvent for the active layer as well as the electrodes. And we're using all of this knowledge to build what we're calling a solar tarp, a mechanically robust electronic material that can be deployed in disaster relief and defense applications. When the grid is knocked out or there is no grid, one can unfurl one of these solar tarps uh, to protect people from the elements while soaking up sunlight and providing power to life-saving equipment below. Thank you. All right, I have to ask. You said you smashed the solar cell a thousand times. I did. Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, I had to do that by hand. Was that? And I did that with, with a hammer or with... over twelve samples to get the statistics on it. So no, no, I uh, had to put it on my body while my lab mate held all the equipment to me. And now I have to compress it. And on average, we you know took a video of it to see what compression we were doing. So yeah. All right, I got to say, I worked on uh, chemistry for printed solar cells in my PhD. I never got to smash solar cells. We were like, you know, in a, on a sort of lab bench all the time. That's awesome. Why the tarps? So this kind of fills in the gap. Uh, so we had the wearable solar cells, which are sort of personal use. These tarps would provide an, uh, inter, some intermittent, uh, intermittent uh, technology between small-scale personal use for devices and then grid scale. This would sort of be that um, uh, middle-scale energy production for maybe people who live off the grid, developing countries, disaster relief, or military, or defense. And when can we get one? Yeah, so that is the good question, right? Hopefully, we're, we're working on printing the uh, devices now, and then also working on the encapsulation and scale, and the, uh, uh, what we call this, the um, <coughs> lifetime of the devices. Awesome. All right, thanks. Thanks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, next up. Uh, from Berkeley, go Bears, uh, we have Laksha Hudar, who's going to tell us about how to build an advanced nuclear reactor in a university lab. Go big or go home. Did you know that 20% of electricity in the United States comes from nuclear power and accounts for 63% of carbon-free electricity production? Many of these plants will be decommissioned soon due to old age, and if we want to replace them with more zero-emissions power, then advanced nuclear reactors form an essential part of our energy future. 
In this talk, I will show that not only can you design a nuclear reactor in a university lab, you can collect experimental data that directly supports it. In our research group, we are designing reactors cooled by fluoride salts, which combat the limitations of currently operational reactors. These reactors operate at high temperatures, making them more efficient, and atmospheric pressure, making them safer than current designs. We call these reactors FHRs, or fluoride salt-cooled high-temperature reactors. Heat is produced from nuclear fission reactions in pebble fuel, each one about the size of a golf ball. And the fluoride salt coolant flows through a bed of hot pebble fuel, transporting the heat to a power conversion system, producing electricity. Now, testing new nuclear reactor designs is complicated and expensive. However, there's one astonishing coincidence that makes it possible to design an FHR in a university lab. A particular class of organic oils can actually simulate the heat transfer properties of the salt if certain non-dimensional parameters are matched. The best part about doing this is that we can do experiments at lower temperature scales and smaller geometric scales compared to the actual FHR. So the idea is analogous to geometrically scaled aircraft models that are tested in wind tunnels. I've been studying the heat transfer between the fuel pebbles and the salt in the reactor core by using a scaled model and the oil. So on the right, you can see a test section that's filled with randomly packed spheres, just like the fuel is configured in the actual FHR. And since these sort of conditions have not been studied in the past before, my work is essential to understanding the heat transfer characteristics of this type of reactor. By putting together results from various scaled experiments, we can show that this reactor design is safe and robust and superior to other nuclear reactor designs. So we're all well aware of the climate change crisis that our world is facing. India recently reported a high, the highest temperature that they've ever seen of 51 degrees Celsius. And scaled experiments allow even graduate students like me to contribute to this exciting and growing field. So, thank you. Awesome. Uh, I, I actually was just recently at a conference that Fortune put on about climate and energy. And the one thing, if you look up fortune.com, they wrote a, an article. The one overwhelming conclusion was that nuclear needs to be a part of our energy future. And they basically said researchers, investors, you know, everyone should, should focus on nuclear. So I guess the question is, after you're done with your degree, do you think you'll work for a company that's doing next-gen nuclear? I would love to, yes. So I'm actually um, more interested in the research aspect, I guess. Um, so I'm looking to go into academia uh, when I'm done. Um, but I, I definitely want to stay in the advanced nuclear reactor sector. Um, there are lots of different designs, and we don't know which one is going to make it big. Um, but I certainly hope that the FHR is, uh, is one of them. So, Awesome. Awesome. We'll leave it at that. Okay, next up, Tianyu Lu from UC Santa Cruz, who will speak on enhancing the performance of supercapacitors through facilitation of ion diffusion. So exploitation of sustainable energy, for example, using solar cells to harvest the solar energy, is an effective way to cut the carbon dioxide emission. Supercapacitors are electri uh, electrical energy or charge storage devices that can be used in conjunction of a solar cell 
to store the electricity produced by the solar cell. For a typical structure of a supercapacitors, it includes one negative electrode, one positive electrode, and the electrolyte field in between. Charges are stored as ions absorbed at the electrode-electrolyte interface. So supercapacitors are able to charge significantly more charges than conventional capacitors and also be able to be charged and discharged at a much faster rates than lithium or the other batteries. One of the most challenges in supercapacitors is to enhance their charge storage abilities at ultra-fast charging rates. In general, most supercapacitors fail to hold a significant amount of charges at ultra-fast rates. This is because at that situation, the ions in the electrolyte need to diffuse into the, uh, to the electrode interface in order to be absorbed and stored there within a pretty short time. But for those ions which are far away from the electrode surface, they need to diffuse within a long distance, and most of them are not fast enough to make to the surface, and this causes the charge loss. This is similar as the situation when during the rush hours on campus, some students will not be able to catch a leaving bus if they stand far away from the bus and are not fast enough. So my research uh, primarily focuses on how to help those poor students to catch the bus. That is, to make supercapacitors that are capable to store a lot of charges at ultra-fast rates. So I have successfully solved this problem by synthesizing and designing a three-dimensional carbon aerogels um, with three-dimensional networks and composed of porous carbon sheets. Electrochemical studies reveal that the existence of intersheet uh, micron pores and submicron cavities on each carbon sheet are critical to facilitate ion diffusion. So they serve as electrolyte reservoirs which can hold ions inside the electrode and in vicinity of the electrode surface, thus can greatly reduce the ion diffusion length. So in this case, ions are pretty easy to catch the bus because they just stand by the bus. The impressive results showed that a supercapacitor using my carbon aerogel electrode is able to retain more than 60% of stored charges at an ultra-fast charging rates of 500 amp per gram, which is a record value and much better than other laboratory products within the comparable charging rates. Thank you. All right, judges are working. Explain to the audience uh, the concept of concentration polarization. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I, I loved, I loved the bus analogy. So, Thank you. Uh, where, when, where did you come up with the bus analogy? How did that come to mind? I think that's kind of motivation actually provided by uh, Sue. So, I, I actually practiced this talk in a, well, a local program we call the Leadership Program, where I also presented this kind of similar topic there. And so I actually came up with the idea, like, why not choose something you know, in daily lives which can you know, similar as what you have described to give the information to the you know, general audience? So I think this was a good idea. And sometimes, because our campus sometimes are, you know, are so crowded and some students, they will not be able to catch a bus during the rushing hours and they are late for the sections and they have, section, they have like, the excuses like, oh, I'm, I cannot take the bus, you cannot take the points now because I'm late, whatever. So I thought, like, that's a good you know, example, right? So like the ions in the electrolyte, they, they want to catch the electro bus. It's similar. So there, you, there you go. There you go. Great, yeah. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you. Okay, so 
for all you scientists out there, communication is so key. I mean, you'll notice everyone sort of like understood what, what was going on as soon as he talked about the bus. I love that. Um, okay, next we have a team from UC Santa Barbara. Shannon Walker, Heather Hochran, Aaron Williamson, and Kelsey Johnson, who will pitch to us about EV Match. Awesome, thank you. Oh. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm Kelsey Johnson, one of the four members of EV Match. Today, the way we transport ourselves is dirty. In fact, as many of, we know, many of us who know in this room today, 37% of California's greenhouse gas emissions come from the transportation sector, and that needs to change. The good news is we have the technology to do that, and we all know electric vehicles are a great solution, especially when they're paired with renewable energy. However, less than 1% of, elect- of California's current vehicles on the road are electric or partially electric. So why do we have this discrepancy between this technology that we know can help us reduce greenhouse gas emissions and the adoption rates we see in reality? Well, over the last four years, my team and I have been looking into this question. Over 400 surveys and interviews with current and future electric vehicle owners, as well as industry experts in the space, led us to three main barriers. Now, looking forward in 2017, we see several vehicles coming to market, including the Tesla Model 3 and the Chevy Bolt, that are going to have half the cost and twice the range as the average electric vehicle on the road today. Therefore, that leaves charging accessibility as the main barrier still to electric vehicle adoption. This is where my team and I saw a great market potential, as well as an ability to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, through a robust cost-benefit analysis that we conducted, we see upwards of a potential for $85 million worth of damages from greenhouse gas emissions to be saved through the model we've developed over a 10-year time frame just here in California. So what is this EV match thing I keep talking about? EV Match is a dual-sided marketplace that effectively puts more charging stations on the map, thus putting more EVs on the road. On one side of our marketplace, we have our hosts, who are residential charging station owners willing to share their stations. On the other side, we have our users, who are current electric vehicle owners looking for more convenient and reliable charging options. Our hosts get a return on investment in their charging infrastructure installment. In addition, they also have the opportunity to make profit based on our proprietary pricing algorithm that allows them to cover the cost of electricity as well as mark it up and down based on market demand. Our users, using our web application, have the ability to find a charging station that matches their location and timing preferences, reserve it, pay for it, and charge it all within a few quick clicks on our application. Now, our web, our web application, this is not just an idea. This is a reality. We've developed it, and we validated it in Santa Barbara, showing that this model actually works. In addition, we take a, 50, a percent markup of the revenue from the transaction as our revenue stream. But that's not where we're going to stop. We see great potential for other revenue, both in data and in partnerships going forward. So why do we think EV Match is going to be a solution to this problem that I talked about at the beginning? EV Match is at the intersection of cleaner electricity, the growth of grid-connected vehicles, and the sharing economy. Therefore, EV Match is perfectly positioned to lead the charge in providing convenient, reliable, and accessible electric vehicle charging and helping to empower a new generation of electric vehicle owners. Thank you. Judges, just put a little star if you also want to invest next to your score. Um, so, Kelsey, that was awesome. Uh, it looks like you guys are talking about a business here. Yes, we are, right? in fact. <laughs> what, what folks generally will say they'll invest in first is the team, mm-hmm. and you have a team. So tell us about how the team came together and 
Yeah, um, so we are at UCSB at the Brennan School of Environmental Science and Management, which is truly an interdisciplinary program. And we have the option of either working with the client for our two years there or doing an eco-entrepreneurship track, which is what myself and my teammates decided to do over the last two years. So therefore, we looked at an environmental issue and tried to fit a business model to it. And as I said, after about 400 interviews with different stakeholders in this space, we kind of figured out that this was the problem that had not really been solved yet in a, in a way that was streamlined and accessible to kind of the new generation of EV owners, aka the millennials, many of us sitting in this room. So I, my team, and myself, we, a lot of us have energy experience. I personally worked at Tesla for before going to grad school, so we bring a lot of diverse uh, consulting, energy efficiency, and analysis to this area. And when, when the team graduates, when you all graduate, this is, this is it? This is what we're looking to do, yes, depending, obviously, on how this evening goes. As how well many as, stars you get? <laughs> yeah, how many stars awesome. the judges decide to give us, yes. Awesome. Awesome. Great Thank job. you very much, Chris. Thanks. <laughs>
and industries. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Tell us a little bit about how you got into this project and where, how, where, how do you think this gets out of the lab? Okay. Um, so the funny thing is, so you talked about a lot about nitrogen at the beginning, and the enzyme, as you might have noticed, is nitrogenase. So that's the natural way how this um, nitrogen is converted into ammonia and made bioavailable. So that's the counterpart to the Haber-Bosch process. And that's how it all started out. And the fantastic thing, the chemistry happens uh, in one of the metal clusters inside the enzyme. And, uh, you know, we are really interested in this, and I love that we, we getting closer and closer on an atomic or even electronic basic to understand how the Haber-Bosch reaction happens and how this happens, which is still not really understood today. So that's how it started and how it's taking off. Um, so basically, through these projects, we are, have at the moment three patent applications, basically, and we are trying really to, to get money for a startup company and get it all out and you know, really try to scale it up in, in fermenters, you know, containing hundreds of liters and see what happens. Awesome. Awesome. Wonderful. Great job. Thank you. <coughs> okay, next up, a team from UCLA, Gabriel Valzoni, Bu Wang, and Chengwei Lin, but probably just Gabriel. Is it Gabriel or Gabriel? <laughs> Gabriel, uh, who's going to talk about carbon upcycling and turning CO2 into concrete. Thank you, and good afternoon, everyone. Concrete, a mixture of cement, water, and rock aggregates, is the most widely used material in the entire world. In fact, over 30 billion tons of concrete are produced every year. But while it's all around us, even above our heads right this moment, uh, what we don't often see about concrete is its carbon footprint. Cement, the main component that makes concrete, and makes it strong, emits approximately 0.8 tons of CO2 for every ton of cement produced. This adds up to over 3 billion tons of CO2 every year, or roughly 7% of global total emissions. Most of this CO2 comes from releasing of uh, CO2 from limestone to produce lime. The, the second highest source is the, the intense heat required to um, make cement from lime and clay. Our um, research seeks to reinvent this process of, CO2, of carb, uh, cement production by closing its CO2 loop and making it a closed-loop process as such. The first step of our process begins similarly to cement production by um, quarrying lime and uh, quarrying limestone and producing lime. But instead of emitting the CO2, we instead capture it and separate it from the gas stream using a selective membrane, and then we reuse it as a feed material in the next step. In our, in our, to fabricate our building elements, we mix lime in, uh, into beams and columns using 3D printing, then expose it to CO2 under high pressure to form a final product composed of limestone. Uh, this increases its strength and also sequesters our CO2. Um, we designed these pieces to be uh, reusable, um, rapidly assemblable building elements, which can be disassembled to be reused later. But when their lifetime is finally over, we can recycle them by heating them, heating them again to produce lime and CO2, and then we can re repeat the cycle without um, quarrying any more limestone. So our team has uh, taken a, has become a multidisciplinary team um, looking to uh, investigate the processes of CO2 separation, lime carbonation, and 3D printing on a lab scale. 
Uh, our team member, Cheng Wei Lin, has been working, uh, he's advised by Dr. Rick Kainer, and he's investigating how to improve CO2 selectivity of these separation membranes. These membranes act as molecular sieves by separating the CO2, allowing it to pass, while preventing uh, larger oxygen and nitrogen molecules to pass through. By tuning the chemical composition of these membranes, we can achieve CO superior CO2 permeability and improved CO2 selectivity, which is the ratio between permeability of CO2 and other um, gas species. Dr. Bu Wang and I have been focusing on investigating the actual mechanisms of the carbonation reaction by which CO2 is incorporated into limestone. We have found the reaction to be quite rapid, reaching over 80% completion within two hours. And also we found that it can um, provide strength. This is a SEM image that shows limestone colored in pink uh, based on its elemental analysis. And you can see that it's forming on silica grains in a cohesive layer. This could provide strength and binding aggregates as the way um, normal cement does in concrete. Finally, we've been working on developing scalable processes for 3D printing of building materials. So we're looking how, uh, this is an example of a binder jetting pr uh, printer, which deposits uh, layers of an adhesive binder onto powders layer by layer to make a 3D object. Um, we are looking at how to integrate this carbonation process with 3D printing and to create uh, material components with spatially varied mechanical properties. Our next steps are to integrate all of these processes and show them, demonstrate them at a pilot scale test. Uh, we are looking to make a facility that could be capable of producing 100 kilograms of building material per hour. And then with this um, facility, we hope to um, optimize the, each of the process, process parameters and fully characterize the final product. We hope to bring a truly dis a disruptive technology to the construction industry, one that focuses on a cradle-to-cradle -cradle approach to CO2 and bodies uh, improved durability and uh, unprecedented design flexibilities to create the construction material of the future. Thank you. Awesome, awesome. Um, who else here jumped a little bit when he said we had concrete over our heads? I kind of like, oh, awesome, big, uh, big there you go, yeah. Um, so this is so cool. Uh, do you, would Tell us about some of the properties of the blocks that come out. Is it, I mean, you're, you're taking CO2, building concrete. Are there advantages to concrete that would come out of your 3D printing process versus? We can definitely make there more be more advantages. So we're looking on controlling spatially having um, gradiented properties. So you could have something that's more stiff where it needs to be by by using uh, the material a lot more efficiently. So we're using different adhesive binders mixed in with the cementation process from carbonation to try to get the best strength and properties. And 3D printing also allows you more flexibility in your shape, so you can really use material more efficiently for better designs. Right now, everything's square around us just because it's easiest to pour. And so using this, we can make actually good use of material. Ladies and gentlemen, the future of buildings. <laughs> Okay, last but not least, uh, Andrew Zumker of UC Merced. Did I say that right? Okay, of UC Merced, who's going to explain land use, energy, water, and solar canals. So here in California, we obviously are faced with a lot of water energy nexus issues that we're constantly reminded about. And Assembly Bill 32, which requires us to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions to 1990 levels by the year 2020, is particularly concerned with the future of water quality and quantity in light of growing populations 
and climate change. So planning for a sustainable future will require us to develop novel conservation strategies to address these issues. And what I want to talk about is installing solar panels on top of canals. I hypothesize that doing this will allow us to not only save water, but be able to produce solar power more efficiently due to the cooling effect that the water has on the panels. The big question, however, is will the benefits of the solar panels, of, of the solar canals, be able to outweigh the costs of the extensive support structures required for spanning the canals? Well, I began looking into this by using three methods for calculating evaporation rates at the locations of all of California's canals and aqueducts, and I found that over 160,000 acre-feet of evaporation can be avoided every year by simply shading the water surface. And then I looked into the water intensity of electricity production here in California, and I found that the current energy mix requires a lot more water for producing energy than solar panels do. So by offsetting the current energy mix with energy created from solar panels on top of canals in California, additional 300,000 acre-feet of water can be saved every year. So then I compare um, land-based solar power to solar canals that either have a steel truss or tension cable support structure, which reduces building materials, and a net present value analysis that considers aquatic weed operation and maintenance offsets, water cost offsets, land costs, environmental studies, mounting hardware, and the increased evaporative cooling efficiency. And I found that the net present value represented by the diamonds in the figure is the highest for the tension cable supported solar canals. This suggests that not only do the benefits of the solar canals outweigh the costs of their support structures, but they're also potentially more commercial than land-based solar power. So, saving water, creating renewable energy more efficiently, and making money are all reasons why solar canals are a great example of the types of conservation strategies that we need for a sustainable future here in California. Thank you. Uh, this is an awesome idea. It's a big idea. What's your degree in? Where? Well, I mean, this analysis is just so unique. So, um, this is actually not my dissertation research either. Oh, another person uh, making their advisor uncomfortable. I love uh, that. But uh, the the we were approached by a branding company who had the idea that was still sitting research, and immediately I was excited about this project and wanted to jump on board, and I needed some funding for a semester, so. Um, awesome. It was a really great opportunity, and I'm really happy how, it, how it's coming together. Are there, are there people to use the electricity near the canals? Uh, well, one of the main consumers uh, initially for pilot projects were hoping to be pumping stations along the canals. Very cool. Very cool. Awesome. Great work. Thanks, Andrew. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.